Good morning. Thank you. Thank you, Renee. Thank you, Tom. Um, you know, I love to hear. I love to hear somebody else confess what what I myself was guilty of, and that was not not being willing to exercise my gifts in the in the church. And uh, so thankful for Renee and the um, the the vision that she has for connecting our church body together. And uh, you know, February twenty fourth is not going to be a one off. Um, it's something that we we feel we need to do uh, with our body a lot more. Um, and so I encourage you to, to prayerfully consider uh, what, is it, what is it that you would contribute to the church body because uh, it takes, takes all kinds of things to happen in order for the body to, to fully minister to each other. I'm so excited about so many things. I'm Steve. Um, the role that I play here at Bethany is as a, an interim uh, executive administrator, they call it. Um, I have a lot of administrative things that I do, um, and and part of that is is teaching. So I'm happy to be here today to introduce the Gospel of John, uh, which will be an extended study that we will be in for quite some time. It won't be exclusively what we do. There will be times that people come through and we ask them to do something specific. Uh, Joel Wildeson will be with us uh, in a couple of weeks. Joel is a missionary to Tanzania, and uh, he is going to be here to teach, uh, do, a, do a teaching on fasting with, with our congregation. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to call our congregation to fast as, uh, as we consider our visioning process that's coming up, because we want, to be, we want to be fully in tune with what God would have for us. It's interesting, Jonathan uh, Meyer pointed out to me this morning, uh, after the first service, he said, you know, God doesn't... God doesn't uh, he doesn't, he doesn't talk about fasting as though it's something that we, you know, might do. He says, when you fast, it sort of assumes that we're, we're going to do that. So uh, Joel's going to be here to teach us about that. Next week, we have Bob Reed coming. Bob is at, at Lancaster Bible College, and he will be teaching on John the Baptist. The way this works is we have broken down John into passages, uh, and so today it's verses 1 to 18. Now, any... Any preacher will tell you they could probably spend eight weeks on 1 to 18. We're doing it in a day. Um, and so we're, we're doing kind of a cursory view of this. So, so understand the purpose in, in, in choosing John is very deliberate. It's very deliberate. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that this morning. So today we begin this journey. Um, and if we're to truly reach the mission that we have here at Bethany, it's, it's that we need to introduce people to Jesus, which is the first statement in our mission statement. And John is the book that does this better than any other book. It is, it is the book that um, John, we'll, 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 I'll give you a little bit of a biography about John. But John was very close to Jesus, and his view of Jesus' ministry is, is unique to the other Gospels. That it's, it's, it's different. You know, of all of the books in the Bible, there's very few that are broken out and published separately. But the book of John is one of those books that gets taken out and they publish just little tracts that are the book of John. Because the book of John is this picture of what Christ was doing and what he was trying to get people to understand all the way through his ministry. You see, we, we know how it ends. We know he goes to the cross. But what we, what we often don't realize is he talked about that and what was going to happen all the way through his ministry. It's just that people didn't 
didn't understand what it was he was saying. Even the disciples didn't understand it. Right up until the Last Supper, they were shocked at what was going to happen. Shocked at what he was saying, that he would be leaving them. Because they just didn't understand. And John is, is a really, really good book for that. So that's why we've chosen to, to undertake this, this story. One of the things that's so exciting to see in our church is um, that, that we've seen the power of prayer come into play. In the last six or eight weeks, we've seen um, our, our midweek prayer meetings becoming uh, well-attended. People are praying. People are submitting to the Holy Spirit. Um, we prayed this week for Lee Brubaker. Uh, those of you who, who know Lee know he had a terrible accident. He's now confined to a wheelchair. And Lee was praying for... He was really praying for clarity of mind because the medications that he has been on to, to deal with the pain that he feels has clouded his, his mind. And he can't... So the things that the doctors tell him he needs to do in rehab, he can't do because his mind is too cloudy. So he was attempting to come down off of those medications. That process started this week. And he was really, really fearful of that and was praying... When I stopped in to see him on Friday, he said, it's amazing. He says, people have to be praying because this, is, this has been a good week and it's been a lot less than I thought it would be. You know, God works in our lives and we don't ever know why he's doing what he's doing. And I want to open with a, a brief story about my mother. Uh, my mother's 85. My mom and dad both live <clears throat> in a retirement home in Southern California, which is where I grew up. And in May, my wife and I were living in Dubai where we, we had been in the Middle East for the last 10 years. And in May, I got a call early one morning from my sister. And she said, Mom's, mom's really not doing very well. Um, you, you, you need to come as soon as you can. So I was actually up early that morning because me and a bunch of guys were going deep sea fishing and I immediately set that to the side. It was about five, five o'clock when I got her text, about six o'clock in the morning when I called her. By nine o'clock, I was on a flight, a direct flight to LAX. And when I got back, my mom was uh, really, she's been battling cancer for about 20 years and she's been through chemo, I think three times, two or three times. Um, she's, had, she's had lots of, Lots of things that she's battled. And she sat, the five of us kids, there's, I have four brothers, and two brothers and two sisters. She sat the five of us down uh, not too long ago and said, you know, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm really not interested in fighting this anymore. I'm ready to go. And so that's what I was flying back for. So I, I, I got into the, into the room with, with her, and um, she, uh, she was basically refusing medical treatment because she, she was ready to go. The problem was the doctor said if she doesn't, if she doesn't receive this treatment, it's, it's assured that she'll have a heart attack. And if she has the heart attack, there's no question she would have it. If she, receives a heart, if she has the heart attack, she's, it's only gonna get, it has about a 50% chance of, of killing her. But the other 50% was she was going to need a lot of care which was the one thing, that was why she was refusing treatment in the first place, because she didn't want to get to that place. So I had this conversation with her, and I remember saying to her, Mom, that's not what you want either. You don't, you don't really want to be in a place where people are caring for you, but you really don't have much of a choice here. You have to take these steps in faith and, and move forward. 
So she said, I'm going to pray about it. And she did. And the next morning we came in and she said, all right, I'm going to do the procedures. Well, she had the procedures. Long story shorter, um, she recovered. You know, Miraculously, there were things that happened that nobody has an explanation for. And within about two weeks, she went back to her, to her home. And uh, that statement of, you know, mom, God has something he still wants you to do. When she went back to the home, um, she made it all the way to this summer. She's actually doing great right now. She made it to this summer where her and my dad were um, celebrating a, a, a really big anniversary. And so all of us kids went out in August. And we, we, you know, every year we think, well, this is probably the last time. So we're going to do something, you know, big. So what we did was we did tributes to mom and dad. Dad was a minister for 40 years. Mom was a pastor's a wife for 80 years. Because that's what it's like to be a pastor's wife. <laughs> Some of you get that joke. Um, and, and so what we did was we did tributes to them, but it was very much a gospel message. And it was in their retirement home, and there was, it, was, it was full. There was a lot of people there. But her 94-year-old brother came down, came over from Arizona to be there. And my Uncle Mel, I, I would say he's kind of a hard man. Uh, life, a life, professional life in the sheriff's office, uh, never a profession of faith his whole life. Never a profession of faith. A good man, but, but not a believer. And in the time that, that he spent about three days with us, and he heard the gospel message, uh, and that, that didn't really do it. What did it for him was watching our family interact. So watching brothers and sisters and praying together and caring about each other and the morning I left, I was gone, um, he accepted Christ. And it was just this, something my mom has prayed for since she was 17. A woman in the rest home, a woman in the rest home has been watching her for years as she struggles physically. And um, not long after Mel came to Christ, this woman also did. And she said it was the testimony of watching my mom be sick, but continually give glory to God. And so, prayer is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. And we never know when God's going to work. But I encourage you to be in prayer for our church. I encourage you to be in prayer for others around you, especially for this teaching in John, because what you are going to see in the coming weeks and months is the full gospel message. I think I am woefully inadequate to begin this, and so um, in a moment we're going to pray, and we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit will, will lead us here as we go through and we take a look at this, this first passage. You know, in, in uh, children's ministry, they're down there right now with the kids, and uh, you know, your truly gifted teachers are in kindergarten. Okay, not, they're not the kindergartners. They're the people that work with the kindergartners. And if you, if you doubt what I'm saying, go spend time in kindergarten. What they do, the patience that they have, the things that they're able to do, it just amazes me as an educator when I see that. So there was a Sunday school teacher, and she was delivered this lesson on, on kind of sin and what we have to do to, to get 
forgiven as sinners. And um, she was done, and she, she wanted to check with her audience to find out whether they had gotten it. And so she asked, you know, can anyone tell me what you have to do to, to obtain forgiveness for your sin? Deathly silent. And one little kid in the back kind of raised his hand and he said, Sin? <laughs> you have to sin in order to get forgiveness of sin? Well, sin is not something that we have a shortage of as people. There's no shortage of sin. I don't care if you are a new believer or you have been a believer for 50 or 70 years. Sin is always present, and sin is always something that we have to deal with and we have to confront in our lives. It's an ongoing battle. The Gospel of John, and what I hope you will see in this next few minutes, is that the Gospel of John gives us a glimpse into how sin, the power of sin is defeated, and that it really doesn't matter. So we want to we start by looking at this, and then we will walk through the book of John, and there will be mul- a multitude of lessons that the Holy Spirit brings to us. I want to start by, by looking at this passage, and I'm, I, don't, I won't often do this uh, when I teach, but um, today we will. I want to read this whole passage. Uh, if In your pew Bible, uh, it's page 881. If you have your Bible, it's John 1. And I want to I read this. By the way, those pew Bibles, if you don't have one, if you've been here, and I remember one time somebody stole a Bible of mine. And I thought, well, they must have needed it more than me. Um, if for some reason you need a Bible or you have a friend, that you can take those anytime. Any week you can just walk out with it. It's not stealing. They're actually there so you can take them. But I want to look at John 1, uh, verses 1 to 18. And it reads, it reads this way in the New Living Translation. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, the John, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone who is coming after me, who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is, who, himself, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Let's pray. 
Dear Lord, we can only begin to comprehend the plan that you put in place and to understand the, the power of sin and how you've chosen as a holy God to deal with our sin. Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us to understand and that we would come away with a better understanding of ourselves, of holiness, and God's redemptive plan for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You know, one of the reasons I like the book of John so much is that you can be a new believer and and know very little about Scripture, and John is the perfect place to start. Perfect. Because it lays out this whole plan. It talks about Jesus' ministry. It talks about his redemptive plan and what he wanted to do in people's lives. But if you're a mature believer, so in other words, you've been a Christian for a long time, and maybe you're very familiar with the Bible, the things that, you're, that we're trying to understand as believers are mysteries that God continues to unfold in our lives. And what we learned in our study of the Holy Spirit is he will deal with each person individually, giving them what they need from, from Scripture. It's one of the true mysteries because a person can stand in front of people and read Scripture, and individually the Holy Spirit says something different to almost everyone in the room. There are times he says the same things. But John is the perfect work just for that reason. I want to spend a little bit of time, a little bit of time talking about John the Apostle uh, so that you can understand the kind of the cultural context and the historical context for, for where he writes from. John was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a very close relationship with Jesus. He was five years younger than Jesus when Jesus started his ministry. James and John, James is John's brother, and James and John were one of the first to be called as disciples. There there were four that were called first, and James and John were two of them. But before they were called by Christ, they were actually followers of John the Baptist. So they had been listening to John the Baptist for quite some time when Jesus arrives on the scene, and John had been telling them that this guy was coming, this guy was coming, and when Jesus calls them, they follow John was probably 18 years old when he started to follow Christ. He lived to be 100 years old. He was the only disciple or apostle that became apostle. He was the only one that died a natural death. All of the others all died violent deaths where they were, they were put to death. John wrote between the years of 500 and 100 AD, so he didn't start writing immediately. He was in Jerusalem, and he was ministering in Jerusalem. We'll talk in a moment about what it was he was doing, but he doesn't start writing until a little bit later. He's called in the New Testament, the son, he he and James are called the sons of thunder because they were very calm and mild until they would preach. And then when they would preach, they just, it was thundering preaching. John uh, is, is, is credited with having written five books, uh, there's, some, there's always some debate among scholars on, on who the authors were, but this, this book of John that we're studying, and then uh, John 1, 2, and 3, and then he's also credited, most scholars believe he wrote Revelation as well. Most of this writing is a little bit later. Um, so what was he doing? What was he doing in that time uh, 
right after the resurrection and up until, you know, about 50 when he starts to write. He stayed in Jerusalem, and he, the tradition tells us he was the one who cared for Mary. So Jesus' mother, he was the one who cared for her, and he shepherded the church in Jerusalem until Mary's death. And then if we're not, we don't really know, you know, how he was taken and when and where, but um, I, I think probably... When she passed away, then he was free to go, and he he started ministry in other places. So John is credited by some as having started all of the churches that show up in Revelation. I don't know whether he really did. We know that he went to all of them uh, at different times. We know that when he was uh, in 95 AD, he was uh, the emperor Domitian, the Roman emperor, sentenced John to death. And he didn't kill him. What he did was he sent him to um, Patmos, the island of Patmos. And he was in exile in Patmos. And then he didn't die there. He actually was released from Patmos, probably when Domitian died. And then he went back to Ephesus and he spent a lot of time in these churches in Asia Minor, which is, which is Turkey today. He had tremendous credentials. Understand that in New Testament time, it was really important to be a witness, you see, I, I'm sort of disheartened today when I turn on the news and I see that this person has lied to Congress, this person lied on the stand. It just seems so common in our culture that it's only a problem if you get caught. But in, in Jewish culture, you would never do that. Your testimony, that the punishment for lying was really severe. And so you wouldn't do that. And so the fact that John was at so many prominent places as a witness really carries sway with believers. So he was at, um, there's a guy, the first person to be raised, I believe it's the first, Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. John was there when Jesus did that. And then he is there at the transfiguration. The transfiguration, Jesus goes up on the mountain and John, and I think John, James, and Peter are with him. And um, Moses and Elijah come down, and Jesus' face is, is, is transformed because of this. And this actually fulfills an, an Old Testament prophecy that Elijah would come and, and, and minister to Jesus. And, but, but actually, they're there, and then the, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody that this happened. But later on, the fact that three of them were there, and when three people in the Jewish culture say this happened, people say it happened. So the witness is very, very important. He was at Gethsemane. So he was in the garden the night that Jesus was arrested. Witness to that. He was one of the ones that was with Christ and fell, and when they fell asleep. He was at the cross. So he witnessed Christ on the cross and the events that took place there. Tradition says he was even in the palace during the trial which most of the disciples were not. They, were, they wanted to be far from that because they were so afraid. He was ministering in Jerusalem, and then uh, when, when the, the ruler Agrippa I came to the throne, um, Agrippa undertook this, this severe persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. And at that point, that was when the apostles fled. I referenced it a couple of weeks ago, that they all went when the persecution, that was under Agrippa. And that was when they kind of moved out into these churches and they were in Ephesus and they were in all of these other places because it was much safer to be there. John stayed in Jerusalem while that was going on. He's not active in the dispute, 
the spiritual dispute between Paul and Peter over Jews and Gentiles, the whole thing that we, we referenced last week, where what do we do? do? Do Gentiles have to do the same things as Jews? And they had the council in, in Jerusalem, and they kind of settled that. John's not active in that at all. And in fact, John is ministering in Jerusalem at this time, and he's, he's probably a leader in the church, probably leading the church, but he really doesn't take part in that. But historians say that it's John's perspective on Jesus that is the closest to what he actually, it's, it's the way he writes. Luke is a historian. But John writes this very personal account of Jesus and he, and he recalls the things that Jesus said early in his ministry that they didn't understand. And it, it kind of unfolds to the point of Christ's resurrection and that's the beauty of the book of John. Because it kind of takes you through this whole plan that God had laid out and we talked about from Ephesians. So the first 18 verses are actually a poem. And the first 13 is John making sort of a proclamation about Jesus. He, he talks about the deity of Jesus. Um, it's a reminder that John the, Baptist, John the Baptist was a witness to the light. Again, witnesses are really important. Really important. If people are there and they see it, that matters in the culture. He says in 1 to 13 that man has not understood the light. They, they, they've, they've seen Jesus, but they haven't understood him. That the world could not recognize him. The Jews could not recognize him as the Messiah. And then he says that the Messiah gives the right for everybody who believes in Jesus to become a child of God, which was a new concept. You could follow God but there weren't very many non-Israelites that were being called children of God. Christ changes that when he comes. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That's a whole sermon series there, just a word study on, on Jesus being the Word, and what does that mean? They say that you know, Scripture is living, it's a living Word. And yet Jesus is called the word. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of scripture. They say that when he was 12 and he went to the temple, he just was, he was teaching the adults. And they're just like, where is this kid from? He was the word. So Jesus comes in, in verse 14 is the one I want to focus on for just a moment. So it reads this way. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of, of the Father's one and only Son. So this is key. Jesus comes, and he dwells among men. Now, I have to tell you, in my infancy as a believer, I used to think that that was kind of a one-dimensional purpose. Jesus came because I'm a sinner, and he needed to show me that it was possible to live a life without sin. And, and as a kid, I was kind of steeped in this legalism because I thought, oh, I was supposed to be like Jesus, which means living without sin. And it was actually a real spiritual trap for me. Because I thought if I couldn't live without sin, I couldn't be a follower of Jesus, and I couldn't be a good person, and I didn't deserve his redemption. And that was in my, the first time that I spoke, I talked about my sophomore year in college when I was 20 years old. 
sitting in a Romans class and, and, and really realizing for the first time, nobody deserves what we get. Nobody does. Nobody can do what Jesus did. So if he wasn't here to show us that you could live a perfect life when he dwelt among us, if he wasn't here to show us that it was possible to not sin, if that's not why he was here, why was he here? And so we move from this rudimentary teaching that we can be perfect like Jesus to something else. Well, what was he here for? And there's really, it's, it's really quite simple. And I want to try to walk you through this. And this is where in the first service I lost all track of time. So we'll be out of here by 2 o'clock, I promise. I say that in jest. It'll be 1.30. So, so in essence, here's what happens. Let me take you back. So we're looking for what's this primary mission of Jesus. But we have to go back to the beginning to figure out what happened that got us to the place when Jesus was here. And you go back to the the Garden of Eden, and when Adam sinned, basically, we were separated from God. See, the, the thing is, in the Garden, Adam and Eve walked amongst God. They were in his presence in the Garden. It doesn't say very much about it, but we know they were communing with God. They talked with God. They were in his presence because they were without sin. But then... They sinned. And what was their sin? Their sin was thinking they could be like God. That they could understand right from wrong because Satan tempted them in this way. And so they were kicked out of the garden and because of their sin, God is a holy God. And this is, this is such a difficult concept for me to grasp. It's so difficult. And at the end, if you don't get it, I'm gonna, you're going to see me kind of breeze by it. At the end, I'm going to show you It's effectively a cartoon, and they do such a good job talking about holiness. So I'm just going to set holiness aside, and we're going to come back to that at the end. But they were separated from God because they were no longer holy. They were sinners, and God cannot dwell among sin. He can't because he's perfect. So let's look at some of these passages kind of quickly. Isaiah 59.2. It says this, listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you. This is interesting. It's not because he can't. He's not too weak to save you. Nor is his ear too deaf to hear your call. It's that your sins have cut you off from him. There's a barrier that is now between you and him because your sin cuts you off from God. In Romans 5.12, it says it this way, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. No one, until Jesus, no one has gone through life without sin. And when we talk about sin, we talk about multitudes of sin. Even today, we don't sin a little bit. We tend to sin a lot in our minds and what we do. And so that's what separates us from God. Genesis 3, 18 and 19. Now this is right after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of life, of good and evil. Okay, this is right after it. And God is kind of pronouncing to them, because you couldn't follow this one thing, now you have to die and you have to go. And he says, he says this in 17. 
He says, he says and, and, the, and, he, and to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All of your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. 18, it will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from the dust, and to the dust you will return. So the separation from God is not only spiritual, it also becomes physical because he kicks them out of the garden. So not only is there this spiritual separation, there's now a physical separation because they can't be in the garden anymore and the garden, everything was provided for them. Now they have to toil. This is now hard because of sin. Acts 17.30, God, this is, this is, this is, this is the one I've struggled with my life to understand. I don't think I fully have it yet. So pardon me while I try. Acts 17.30, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in the early times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn to him. I'm going I'm to come back to this in a minute. But the people of Israel, from Adam until Abraham... Do you know what they were supposed to do? Do you know what their definition of goodness was? They didn't have one. They simply were to believe in God. It wasn't a long list of things. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about how they get to the long list of things in a moment. And then to the Gentiles, God says this, Ephesians 2.14, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separates us. So this is another thing that Christ does on the cross. The wall of, of separation that was between Christians and non-Jews uh, and, and Gentiles, that gets torn down, and Gentiles now have the same access to God that the people of Israel have always had. But the access to God, because of their sin, was, was restricted. And, and we'll talk in a moment about how that works. So man had been separated from God by sin. This simple message that they have of faith in and worshiping God, that was all they needed to do. Believe in him and worship him. That was their charge. They couldn't do it. Mankind got worse. Adam's son, Cain, killed his brother, Abel. People were sent out. They were told to populate the earth, not to combine into cities. They combined in cities because they wanted to make a name for themselves at Babel. They tried to build a tower to get to God, and it got worse. They didn't follow God. They didn't remember who he was. As they populated the earth, Satan worked in their hearts to move them further and further from God. Finally, in the days of Noah, so Adam... They populate the earth, race ahead to Noah. And here's the thing that I just, I can't wait to get an answer to this. How bad, we think our world is bad. How bad did it have to be in the days of Noah that God said, that's it. I'm saving eight people and everybody else has got to go. How bad did it have to be? But that's what happened. God destroyed the earth, all but one man and his family, eight people. Noah. Several generations after the flood, God makes a covenant with Abraham. So, so you have Adam. 
Adam sins. No instructions from God. Just believe and follow. That's it. They couldn't do that. What they do became more and more pagan. God destroys the earth. Starts over again with Adam. By the way, he wanted to do that with Moses as well. He wanted to wipe out the Israelites after a story I'm going to tell you. Starts over with Noah. Populate the earth. And it goes all the way up into a man named Abraham. And Abraham, God says to him, he makes a covenant with him. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. So that's in Genesis 15. And that he would make his descendants this great nation. They were to follow God. They were to worship him. They still don't have very much they're asked. There's not much that's asked of them. And if you think that you know people that are messed up, and maybe you come from a family that you think is messed up, go and read about this family. Go and read about Jacob. Oh my goodness. What a train wreck. But out of Jacob, so you have Abraham, his son Isaac, and the covenant is confirmed again with Isaac in Genesis 26, and then again with Jacob, the grandson, in Genesis 28. Jacob is the one that has the 12 sons, 13 sons when Benjamin is added, and one of the sons gets sold, that's Joseph, and he goes to Egypt, and then he ultimately, God, God puts him in Egypt, and he gets this position of favor in Egypt, and ultimately Jacob moves his whole family to Egypt because there's a famine. And so Jacob's family ends up, I mean, we're talking about probably hundreds of people at this point that moved to Egypt and they lived there. And the book of Genesis ends with Joseph dying and the people of Israel living in Egypt. And then Exodus starts. And what happens between Joseph's death and the beginning of Exodus is hundreds of years. And the people grow They're now in the millions, and when Exodus starts, they're now enslaved in Egypt. We don't know that much. I I suspect they weren't very faithful. I suspect they couldn't do the simple thing, and they couldn't keep the covenant with Abraham. That's what I suspect. There's not a lot of biblical support for that. So... He takes them out of Egypt. Moses is sent. He takes them out. And they they go out. And it's two months after they leave Egypt. Two months. It's not years. It's two months. They leave Egypt. And God moves them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And they're sitting at Mount Sinai. All three million of them. And God decides, now I'm going to give you more. Now I'm going to give you more. And he says, I'm going to make, this is Exodus 19. I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests, and I'm going to make you a holy nation. And I'm going to give you laws so that you can understand how to be a holy nation. And so they're at this mountain two months after leaving Egypt. They've just seen the plagues. They've just seen the Passover, you know, where the, 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 the angel of death came over and killed the firstborn in Egypt. They've uh, gotten manna from heaven. Uh, Moses has hit the rock. They've gotten the water. They've seen the... This has all happened in two months. And they get to the foot of Mount Sinai, and God calls Moses up onto the mountain. And so Moses goes up on the mountain, and God says to him, basically, I'm going to give you this stuff. I'm going to give you these things, and you can then follow these. I'm going to give you some direction. 
So Moses goes down and he says to the, to the, 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 the leaders of all of the tribes, he says, this is what God has told me. Um, he wants to make us his people. He wants to reconfirm Abraham's covenant. He's going to give us help. He's gonna, he wants to send his presence down to us. And they were like, yes, we're in. So God says, okay, so I want you to prepare the people of Israel. They need to wash and they need to prepare themselves for three days because I am going to descend, God is going to descend on Mount Sinai and then I'm going to give you this instruction and and he's actually going to allow the Hebrew people to hear his conversation with with Moses, we're told. He is going to speak audibly and Moses is going to, to, and the people are going to witness this. And so they do. God descends, this cloud descends on the mountain. It's shaking. It's, I mean, you can imagine if God is on earth and the people are terrified and they have this conversation and God calls Moses up onto the mountain to give him this instruction. And what comes back? You guys with me? Ten Commandments. And a whole bunch of other stuff. Problem is, so they, they've just come through all of this. They've just seen God talking to Moses. They've experienced all of this, but he's gone 40 days on the mountain. And what do they do in the 40 days? They, 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 they collect the jewelry, and they create a golden calf. It's just like they cannot get out of their own way. And Moses comes down after 40 days, and God has given them these volumes of stuff that are going to help them, and they couldn't make it 40 days under this new covenant. Moses throws, the, Moses throws the tablets down. He wasn't supposed to do that. God had to make two new ones. And then we get to, so, okay, so what was God? And that was at that point, God was so upset. That's when he said to Moses, that's it. I'm just, gonna, I'm just getting rid of them. I'm going to start over with you. And Moses actually pled with God, no, you can't do this. What are the Egyptians going to say? You did all of this stuff and then you bring them out here to kill them all? I don't think that Moses was you know, speaking wisdom to God. We don't, we don't exactly know why God has these conversations with men. But he doesn't kill the Israelites. And he goes forward with his plan. And his plan was to bring the tabernacle. To bring his physical presence into the camp of the Israelites. And so he's very specific with Moses. This is what Moses was getting when he was on the mountain. Part of this 40 days was getting the instructions on this. And God says, I want you to create this. And he gives him very specific instructions because what we're told in Scripture is, this is, in, is it's a model of what is in heaven. We're told that this is what heaven is like. And if God is going to hold a place on earth, it has to be just so. The tabernacle was placed at the center of Israel. And God was going to bring his presence into their midst to kind of help them. You see, God cannot be approached on human terms because of sin. And so there were very specific rules about the tabernacle because it's not okay in that day to just approach God because of your sin. 
And in fact, so, so the, there's, a, there's this wall. It's a wall. It's, a, it's fabric around the tabernacle. You have a, a sacrificial table here. You have a place where you wash. And then you enter. Actually, you don't. I don't. The priests would enter into the holy place, which was here, and there were certain rituals that would take place there, and then inside there was the Holy of Holies. That's where the veil was, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and only one person was allowed to go in there during the year, and that was the high priest. One day, one act, he would enter into the Holy of Holies, and on the, on the Ark of the Covenant, on the lid, he would put a sacrifice there for the sins of Israel. One time a year. And anybody else who tried to go in would be struck dead. Because God is a holy God, and you cannot enter God's presence through sin. So in the... Now, I, did you smell something sweet when you came in? So I'm, I think I'm afraid that somebody here has allergies. And so I'm not going to light that again because it's quite strong. That was, that was incense. This is, this is frankincense. And frankincense was one of the gifts that was given to Jesus. And frankincense, we know that frankincense was burned in the, in the tabernacle. And there were three other spices that we don't know what they were. They were kept secret and the priests were not allowed to tell anybody what that concoction was. But we're told it gave off a very sweet smell. So I burnt some things in the first service. It's quite strong. I'll just tell you about it and not burn. If you want afterwards, I can give you some frankincense. You can burn it at home. So in the, in the tabernacle, you have this table of sacrifice. Now this table of sacrifice, this was kind of 24-7. There was always to be a fire lit under this. There's three million people that have to make sacrifices, and Aaron's family was the one who did the sacrificing. They were the priestly class. And so they were burning stuff constantly. So what you would do is you would come to the tabernacle periodically. You would bring an animal. had to be a perfect animal. You would give it to the priest. You were allowed to enter the courtyard. The priest would, would sacrifice the animal on this altar, and then you would go. But you had to do it over and over. There were, at, you know, at different times in the year, there were specific sacrifices that were done. And then on the atonement was the day that the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and he would make this one for the whole nation of Israel. So you had this table of sacrifice, seven and a half feet wide. The animal would be washed and then it would be sacrificed. And the priests did this all day, every day. They never sat down. Their job as priests was never done. Then there was the laver. The laver is this wash basin here. And the priests, when they would go into, because when they, when they would approach the laver and they would approach the, the, the holy place, they were full of blood. And so they had to be clean. They would wash their hands and they would wash their feet. And then they would go into the holy place and they would perform rituals. They had a, a number of rituals that they would perform in an ongoing way. And there were a number of priests who would go in there, the priestly class. Hebrews and Psalms and Peter all talk about having cleanliness, clean hands. Baptism, the, the, the rite of baptism that we observe is about, it's, it's all tied to this. A cleanliness, it's a symbolic cleanliness. 
But, but this is woven through scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, all of it pointing to Jesus. And then there's the holy place. So in, in the holy place, so this is the first chamber. In the holy place, you see three things. You see a, a, a lamp. Jesus is the light of the world. This is the lamp, and it, it illuminates the whole chamber. You see a table of bread. And this table of bread, there's 12 loaves of bread all the time. They're replaced every day, and on the Sabbath, the priest would go in and eat this bread. It was a reminder of the priest that God is always thinking about the people of Israel. And then there was an altar of incense, and this sweet aroma that would be burning in the temple and would waft into the Holy of Holies. And then in the Holy of Holies is where you have the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is, is three and a half by three, it's acacia wood, and then it is, is lined with gold. Inside the ark is a bowl of manna. And remember, when they, when they did this, this was all very new. They hadn't been in the wilderness for 40 years. They'd only been in the wilderness for months. So manna was there. The tablets, the second set of tablets that, that Moses brought down off the mountain were in there. And then Aaron's staff, all of the leaders, when, when Moses came down, all of the, they had to choose a priestly class. That would, that would do all of this. And so all of the leaders, the family leaders, had to give their staffs, and overnight, God made one of the staffs bloom, and it was Aaron's. And so Aaron's family became the priestly class. So as you were a repentant sinner, you would enter the tabernacle courtyard, and you would walk forward, and as you drew closer and closer to the physical presence of God, because what this was, this was the lid was called the mercy seat, and the cherubim are, are two angels that guard the ark. But this is literally where God would sit. There was a flame, we're told, that would descend on the Holy of Holies and was present all the time. And that was, that was God's presence in, the, presence in the Holy of Holies. And there were times that he would move. And this, this pillar would get up and move. And then the Israelites would have to pack up, all three million of them. They would have to pack up and they would follow this to a new place. And then God would establish his presence again. But people were only allowed to get so close, and then you needed a priest to fulfill the sacrifice. But you had to do it over and over and over and over. So this takes us to Jesus. So what's Jesus' role in all of this? The symbolism, guys, is so deep. All of those implements, the way they were positioned in the tabernacle from the, the altar to the laver to the incense to the bread to the candle and then the ark formed the shape of a cross. Jesus being the light of the world, the lampstand. Jesus, the bread of life, the bread that the priests would eat unbelievable symbolism. So now Jesus comes. We know that only the high priest could enter. We know that only the high priest could enter. And we know that blood was required to cover sin. But this had to be done over and over and the priests never stopped making sacrifices. But Jesus came and we're told that he becomes the high priest. So we didn't need the priesthood anymore because 
Scripture calls Jesus the high priest. So he is not only the high priest, he also becomes the sacrifice. He becomes the animal. And so this is what Hebrews says. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. So, so Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered th- that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. So here's what happened. Here's what happened. Jesus dies on the cross. He is the sacrificial lamb, but he's also the high priest. And when he goes to heaven, he goes into the heavenly tabernacle himself. He is the high priest. But because of the shedding of his blood, it renders everything in the temple and sacrifices a moot point. No longer necessary. And what happens at Christ's death? What happens at the moment he dies? An earthquake, right? And what happens to the veil that separated God from man in the, in the Holy of Holies? What happened to it? It was torn from top to bottom. That veil was six inches thick. 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide, six inches thick. An earthquake split it right down the middle. Incredibly symbolic. Because with Christ's death, with Christ's resurrection, with Christ's giving of his blood... We no longer needed the sacrifice. And Christ tells us, Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit is now going to dwell in you. And where is the temple now? We are the temple. The separation is no more. The importance of Christ on the cross, the importance of blood, you'll spend a lifetime trying to understand it. But what we're told is God is now in our presence. He infills us. We don't need priests anymore. We don't need sacrifices anymore. Jesus did all of that. It wasn't about being here and showing us that somebody could be perfect. It was about being the redemptive lamb that would be sacrificed so that everybody could enter into God's presence. More verses, uh, Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. Christ did not enter in a holy place uh, made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God. It's very deliberate because when Christ enters heaven, what does it say he did? He sits down at the right hand of God. Priests were never allowed to sit down. Their job was never over. But he's in the presence of the Father and he sits down at the right hand of God because... The work is done. There's nothing more to do. Hebrews 10, 15 to 18, and the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so, for he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day. I will put, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when the sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Individually, the laws of God that, that, that were given to Moses on the mountain, he writes them on our hearts. The Holy Spirit guides us and directs us in what we are supposed to do, and, and we're expected to respond to that. 
1 Corinthians 5.21, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin that we could be made right with God through Christ. Hebrews 8.6, but now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. And Romans 8, 38 and 39, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Guys, the significance of that, I, I don't know if I can articulate it. We were separated from God, but with Christ, we can never again be separated. He promises that will not happen. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, the price of his son, so that you must honor God with your body. So this concept of holiness that is so hard to understand. Why does God do what he does? Why? How is it that we can be made holy? How is it that we can go from needing sacrifices and not being able to to commune with God, that with this simple act, which was bloody and vicious and violent, And I think Satan thought he had won the day when it happened. I don't think Satan knew that it was fulfilling God's ultimate purpose. I think when when Christ descended into hell, which is what happened when he took our sins, I think Satan thought he had won. Because we know that he doesn't understand Scripture. He, He knows Scripture. He doesn't understand it. But this act made us holy. So I want to I want to lighten it up a little bit. And I want to show you this. I want to show you this. I'm sorry it's late. But I think this is this is quite important. I want to show you a clip from the Bible Project that explains holiness in a way that if you go home and show your child this, they might even understand holiness. So as we're doing that, I'm going to ask the band to come and they'll be ready. And when this is over, we'll conclude. So this is the Bible Project. Tim Mackey. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. 
and Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development. This time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but 
Where's this all heading? So, the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time, it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. He's going to, there, there's more of this plan that comes out. If, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know um, what it is that, we, that we're talking about, I'm, I'm, I'm up here in the front. If you want to come down and talk with me and pray with me, I would be happy to do that. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for your willingness to seek God.